Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. Could this be the episode where you find yourself in debt to me? And if you are, is that good or bad? And is debt in general good or bad, or both? Well, my guest has the background to explain that. He's Richard Vague, and his career has spanned fields as varied as banking, energy, government, and the arts. He recently served as Secretary of Banking and Securities for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Richard is the author of The Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity, published by University of Pennsylvania Press, and it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. For everything about Richard, go to richardvague.com, and you can follow him on LinkedIn. And Richard, welcome to the show. It's such a privilege to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Before talking about your book and debt, I mentioned briefly your background. Can you give us a fuller picture of your various careers and how you came to write the book? Well, I ran out of money in college and got a part-time job at a bank and without barely knowing what a bank was. And, you know, here, you know, 50 years later, I had a career in banking that turned out pretty well. And we sold our bank and I got into energy for a while and then venture capital. And then the governor of Pennsylvania tapped me to be secretary of banking. And here I am. And the, the book in particular stems from the crisis of 08, where clearly our government and our Federal Reserve and our Treasury failed to see that coming. So I've been digging into that since then, and I think I have some pretty important perspectives on that. And the book, the book is a culmination of those. And I alluded in the beginning about the word debt, and it's both good and bad. I can tell you from a personal point of view, I view personal debt as something I want to avoid because it just feels free. I don't have to pay a monthly car payment. I don't have to pay a monthly retail installment debt. So that's my perception as a typical consumer, or maybe atypical consumer. But you're looking at it from a totally different perspective. Could you explain the difference and why there's private debt, which may not be personal, it may be institutionally private, and then there's, of course, public debt. So if you can clarify that for our listeners and viewers, that would be great. And of course, they go read the book, they'll get a much more greater understanding of all of this. Well, it's all of the above. So <laughs> we, we talk about total debt, which is divided into government debt and private sector debt. People talk about government debt all the time. People don't talk about private sector debt as much, but private sector debt is actually a bigger amount. It's $40 trillion wow. compared to government debt of $30 trillion. And that private sector debt is about half debt of households, including mortgages and credit cards and the like, and about half business debt, commercial real estate loans, energy loans and the like. Well, again, going back to my observation as an individual consumer, the idea of private debt is abhorrent because I don't want to get tied into something. But your view is that there's positives and negatives about debt. Could you first, on a micro level, explain why it would be positive for me as a consumer, as an individual in society, go into debt? What would be the benefits of that? Well, you know, I tend to agree with your general philosophy, so I don't mean to to, to advocate profligacy and debt. However, economies cannot and do not grow without growth in debt. And on the household side, most of that comes from housing. Uh, you know, the most productive form of debt is 
uh, a home loan, especially when you buy the home at an appropriate and reasonable value. But, you know, for the economy to grow, we need factories built, we need new homes built, and that's really all predicated on debt. What about the implications uh, for private debt if it gets too much? In other words, if the private sector is holding too much debt, how does that affect the general economy or does it affect the general economy? Well, I think it slows the economy down as it mounts up because folks have to divert more and more of their income to paying down interest in principal on debt. And to give you a sense of that, in right after World War II, private sector debt as a percent of GDP was about 35%, you know, kind of a century long low. And today it's over 160%. So there's been a almost a five-fold increase in the amount of household debt. And that's weighing folks down compared to the way it was in the 50s and 60s. And I think you see that manifest in somewhat lower GDP growth rates today versus the go-go 50s and 60s. What about the issue of there's people think of the debt, but they don't speak too often about the deficit. There's a difference, obviously, between the two. And the deficit relates more to what Congress authorizes on a public on the public side, Congress authorizes a certain amount of money, and then we spend more than we gather in taxes. So there's that deficit, but then we also have the debt, which is a long-term debt, long-term debt. Say that three times real fast: long-term debt. Uh, but are there warning signs on both the debt side and on the deficit side? Well, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head here. The government's deficit is funded by the government's debt. So if the government had, you know, 10 trillion in debt at the beginning of the year and it had a deficit of a trillion at the end of the year, it would have 11 trillion in debt. But there's something really important to understand about that that is not understood or recognized, but we get into this in the book quite deeply. And that is when the government spends money, it doesn't disappear. It doesn't evaporate. It goes into the checking accounts of households. So in the very famous notable period of 2020 through 2022, government's debt increased by $6 trillion, which was the most it had ever increased in that short of a period. But household wealth in that same exact three-year span increased by $31 trillion. So the government's $6 trillion went into the checking accounts of households, and which is what always happens. And in addition to that, the flood of money pushed up the value of stocks and real estates. And stocks and real estate are about 60 to 70% of all wealth. So net-net households were huge winners of government spending. And that's consistently true through time. Although in the case of COVID, it was direct payments. But in, in previous years, I would think it would be indirect payments from the government to individuals or households in the sense that, I'll use the term trickle down in the sense that, let's say government authorizes X amount of dollars for construction of a highway. And then to construct that highway, you have to buy materials from contractors and you have to hire labor and the labor earns money and that money then goes to the household. So there's that indirect benefit. But you're right, in the last couple of years, it's been direct, meaning into the, into the checking accounts electronically during COVID at least. 
Am I correct well, or am I off? Exactly right. You're okay. exactly right. You know, okay. But you know, at the end of the day, most of it ends up in the checking accounts of Assel. So you know, you know, even in the situation you described, it goes into the, you know, to the accounts of the workers. You know, if you buy supply, it goes into the accounts of the workers of those supply companies. You know, government spending ends up in household checking accounts. Not all of it. Unfortunately, we have a trade deficit, so some of it goes to the rest of the world, but most of it goes to households. And the byproduct is inflation, too, though, right? Well, that's the conventional view. And, you know, you'll forgive me for, uh, you know, I've done a lot of work in this area. And, and I think this inflation related to the pandemic and the shortage of workers and supplies, scarcity pushed prices up. And then on top of that, we have this Ukraine war, which pushed up, you know, however you feel about Ukraine and Russia, Collectively, they export a lot of wheat, natural gas, and uh, oil, pushed up prices there for, for uh, a good bit. That's calmed down a little bit. So that has been our inflation. And as we've kind of got our arms around that and the supply chains have been repaired, we had really good news last week on inflation. It's been down now for several months. And year over year, it was only 3%. So that's down from a peak of 9%. What we don't see, and we've studied this over 47 countries going back, you know, as early as World War II, we don't see a correlation between government spending or money supply growth and inflation. Before we get into the book itself in more detail, the concept of government spending has always interested me in this way. Both of us have lived a while, and we always have these warnings of, we're going to go into a large deficit, uh, the taxes are going to be onerous, the debt is getting out of control, how are we going to take care of all this? But government as a sovereign entity has the ability, if they wanted to, to kind of dismiss all that debt, including their own, by a stroke of the pen or by converting it to a coin, as they like to talk about, or however the means that they can do it. In other words, sovereign nations can work their way around, it seems, debt and deficits through whatever mechanisms that they choose, whether it's in the free market economy or in an authoritarian regime. Do you agree with that or do you approach it from a different point of view? Well, let's put it in perspective for a moment. The government's debt is around $32 trillion now. Household wealth is about $150 trillion. So the $32 trillion, you know, people repeatedly say, you know, our children and grandchildren and grandchildren's children aren't going to be able to afford this massive debt. Households already have the $32 trillion in the government's uh, net deficit. However much in debt the government goes adds to household wealth. So if, for example, what you said was true, if we, you know, got rid of the debt by some means of which you named several, Household wealth would decline from 150 trillion to 120 trillion. So, you know, the mechanisms you suggest would work. You know, we could spend another trillion by minting a coin as the monetary, modern monetary theorists posit that that would in fact work. But it gets back to the fundamental equation that I said, which is mm -hmm. households have 150 trillion in net worth and government's debt is an asset to households. You know, I'm delighted that you're on the show because you've given me a different perspective, which I've never had before. So that's a great way to think of that. And it just seems that I've been hearing that through my life about how 
government spending is out of control, government debt is out of control, and that inevitably leads to less income and less assets for average households or households in general. But what you're saying, it's almost a yin and a yang in the sense that the more government spends, on the one hand, the more assets households receive. Would that be? That's uh, exactly right. And I think yin yang is a good way to think about it. <laughs> and, and it's accounting. You know, for every expense, there's income. For every asset, there's a liability. And consumers just happen to be on, or households happen to be on the receiving end in this case. Interesting. Well, let's talk about your book. I don't want to pin you down to the top three, but I guess I'm going to try to. What would be the top three messages of your book for people to understand? And again, I just want to give the name of it. It's called The Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity. It's published by University of Pennsylvania Press. So you know it's serious, right? Because it's published by University Press. Anyway, what would you say the top three, if there are top three, or maybe there's more, but whatever you, however you'd like to share it with us, your top three messages or the important aspects of your book? The first message is that we have been understudying underappreciating the role of private sector debt in the economy. It's bigger than government debt. And we we show you ways to think about it. A second message is the one we just discussed, which is increased government spending actually benefits households. But we caveat that by saying it disproportionately goes to the already wealthy. Growth in debt increases household wealth but it increases inequality at the same time. And the reason for that is very simple. The top 10% of households own 65% of all the real estate and stocks in the country, which is the majority, the biggest component of household wealth. The bottom 60% of households only hold 14% of all the stocks and real estate. So if debt pushes up the value of stocks and real estate, the wealthy get wealthier and the divide between the haves and the, ha- and the have less, if you will, uh, gets wider. So I guess the only other thing I'd say about the book is we end up with some policy recommendations. We, we end up with some strategies around how to prevent financial crisis, how to address areas like student debt and mortgage arrear debt problems and bankruptcy and the like. So hopefully there's a series of pragmatic policy ideas to at least think about. If the concept, though, is, as you stated, that it benefits households, but generally the wealthier households to begin with, and that perpetrates the problem of what people talk about, inequity and inequality, in a sense, is part of your proposals within the book, how to correct that aspect of it as well, so that those on the lower rung benefit? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the, the I go further. I say... Because debt growth is built into the economy and it, and it causes asset values to rise and the wealthy hold the majority of assets, increased inequality is built into the system. It's not a bug, it's a feature. And we demonstrate this from 1945 to the present, not just in the United States, by the way. We look at the seven largest countries in the world and we see that the same thing happens everywhere. It's a structure, of mo- it's a feature of the structure of modern economies. Now, I don't get depressed and despair as a result of that, 
nor do I suggest there's a silver bullet or magic formula for fixing this. Mm -hmm. I go into an array of suggested policies. I, I think it's something where we, we do something a little different here, here, and here across, you know, 10 or 15 different policy areas. We can change the slope of the curve, so to speak, and mitigate many of these things. How did you start researching the book? Did you go into it with the concept that there was a paradox of debt, or did you just have a feeling about it? Or from your experience working for the state of Pennsylvania, in your role there, you saw elements of this? How is it that you decided to write the book and research the book? Again, the paradox of debt, a new path to prosperity. What was it that brought you to that point? Well, we used to study consumer or household debt in my role as a bank president. So every month for 20 years of my career, we would look at the trends in mortgages and credit cards and the like. That changed significantly in the mid 2000s. Mortgage debt started growing like that proverbial hockey stick graph. And we were worried about, but we couldn't find anybody else that was. And sure enough, we had the global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. So we spent a lot of time after that understanding how buildups in private sector debt led to crises. In fact, an earlier book of mine covers the 43 major crises in world history and the six largest countries in the world over the last 200 years, if you want to dig into something. So, but as we've gone through the years lecturing on that subject and getting really a very favorable response, I was asked again and again and again, well, what about the asset side of the balance sheet? So, and I can't, you know, you know how you are, you know, I'll get to that, I'll get to that. But we decided a few years ago, we were going to roll up our sleeves and start analyzing countries, not just related to their debt, but also related to their assets. The, really the way a conventional financial analyst would, you know, the way I would if I was analyzing as a young banker, analyzing a company or an industry. I said, let's just take those same tools and look at countries. And uh, we looked at the top seven in that way. And that's really what the book is, is a look at these seven countries in a holistic way using the tools of a financial analyst as opposed to the somewhat esoteric rules of an economist. Was there a difference in terms of the countries? In other words, you have countries that have, well, you think of free enterprise, but we have a mixed economy in the United States and there are countries around the world that have mixed economies. Then you have command economies or used to have more of them when communism was big on the Eastern Europe front. But there's there's different financial systems around the world. Does that play a part in your analysis about debt? You know, it, it turned out when we studied these seven countries that five of them were very similar. And that would be the UK, France, Japan, India, the United States. You know, these countries all kind of went along the same path. Two were very different. Germany and China. Hmm. And the difference in Germany is really that Germany has, up until the last few months, by the way, a profound trade surplus, an overwhelming trade surplus. You know, the U.S. has a trade deficit currently of about 3%. The Germany has had a trade surplus of about 
8 to 10% of its GDP, which really happened as a result of the euro, euro currency. It really all came about when all those were kind of consolidated into the euro in about the year 2000. And you look at the chart, you know, Germany was like everybody else. It got, you know, it had slight deficit or parity, and then all of a sudden, boom, it's a m- massive net exporter. And that has made a profound difference in its economy, which it's about to lose, by the way, because of the way the world has changed and China and so forth. The other economy that was very different for the very reason you suggest, the command economy aspect, is China. And in China, we see a extremely unusual phenomenon, and that is that businesses have net losses that are massive. And to fund those losses, they had bank loans that mean the bank or the total lending to the business sector in China is twice the level it is in the rest of the world. In the U.S., it's like 70% of GDP, and China's like 150% of GDP. And that's, you know, that's only possible because it's a command economy. And really, the beneficiary of those losses are households. So in the U.S., it's government losses that fund household wealth. In China, it's business, it's bizarre, but it's business <laughs> losses that fund household wealth. And we were so surprised by this results that we started to look one by one at the top 250 countries in China to see if the conclusion we were getting from OECD and World Bank data was true if you added it up company by company. And sure enough, it was. And it's a startling fact and really puts China in a very vulnerable, fragile, risky situation. What surprises besides that one, what surprises did you find in your research while writing the book that you didn't know or that you thought you knew, but turns out to be the opposite? Or was there anything that surprised you? Given your, given I, you know, your background. I, 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 you know, we've been at this for about 10 to 12 years now, and I think I've been nothing but surprised. <laughs> so one of the early big surprises is that debt always grows relative to the size of the economy. This is the statistic we trotted out early on where total debt was 125% of GDP in 1980, and now it's 260%. I was astonished by that. I thought that was a mistake. And this is going back over 10 years now, because I've been a banker for, you know, a couple of three decades right. at that point. I mean, nobody had ever said, I thought it was an equilibrium. That's all you hear. <laughs> you know, there's cycles and things come back and there's an equilibrium. And so we did that. We did that same exploration of the other major countries in the world. And back in those days, the data was really hard to get. Mm-hmm. And we spent a lot of time on that. And we found out that that's true across all major economies, well, my teeth almost fell out of my head. (laughs) So it's been discovery after discovery subsequent to that, which are really emanate directly from an empirical approach to the data. Mm -hmm. Were you, when you were surprised, were you delighted that you were surprised or were you annoyed that you were surprised because you had certain thoughts and uh, certain analysis in your head from all your years and decades of experience? Well, I was insecure. It was like you find something out and, you know, I spent quite a bit of time on each of these discoveries, assuming that I had done my analysis incorrectly, you know, reconstructing it from different angles and 
right. pulling it together piece by piece and giving it, by the way, to other organizations to check my data without me looking over their shoulder. And so there was a lot of self-doubt. And I think that process of self-doubt has given me an enormous level of confidence in where we are and what our data looks like now. Looking at the short term and looking at the long term from both, and we have about a minute and a half, so you take your time. But looking at it from a global perspective and from a an American perspective, are you optimistic or pessimistic? So from a global perspective first and then from an American perspective. Well, I put the two of them together and that say that the U.S., for all of our troubles, of which we have many, we look pretty good relative to the rest of the world. Our private sector debt is much lower than the equivalent in China. Our government debt is a lot lower than the equivalent in Japan, and so on and so forth. So, you know, I still like where we are a lot vis-a-vis the rest of the world. And I'm reasonably sanguine, you know, I, I don't think our growth is going to be as rapid as it was historically, but I'm reasonably sanguine about where we are, and I think there's lots of opportunities if we will seize them. Do you think, though, that going back to the beginning of our conversation, do you think I'm right or wrong? So I'll, I'll, put, I'll put it to you. Am I right or wrong about being conservative about getting into debt, with the exception, I guess, of buying a home? I, I think your uh, view is a very healthy one. I think that you know a lot of the debt we're seeing uh, over the last several decades has been because wage growth has not kept up. You know, I would love to see a next scenario where we did through massive retraining or other programs, we saw folks' wages go up uh, through tax advantages. We let folks accumulate, you know, stocks and bonds in a more advantaged way. You know, I'd love to see that turn around. But, you know, I think, you know, the key in all of life is balance, isn't it? You know, so, you know, I, I, I don't think we should eschew debt entirely, but I think your approach is probably closer to the way it ought to be than most. And I think your message is actually very soothing in a way. People who get excised about debt on a public level can take some solace in the fact that that's always going to be there and that it turns out to be, again, a yin and yang situation where, yeah, there's public debt, but there's an increase on the private side and hopefully more of the private side, meaning lower levels of society that can, can benefit from that as well, because all of that then keeps generating more activity for the economy. That's right. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Richard Vague. He's author of The Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity. It's published by University of Pennsylvania Press. It's available on Amazon, Barnes and & Noble, and all the usual places. For everything about Richard, you can go to Richard Vague, V-A-G-U-E, richardvague.com, and you can follow him on LinkedIn. And Richard, thanks for being on the show. It's such a privilege to be with you. Well, thank you. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.